Hi there, this is Jules. If you would like to watch this episode on video, please go to my show page, which is loaradionetwork.com forward slash Jules. That's J-E-W-E-L-S to see the last two videos. All videos and radio shows were completed in absolute love just for you. So please enjoy. The secret to well-being is discovering the power that is your birthright, the power to create a happier, healthier life drawn from our own vast internal resources. Join Jules and her guests as they gently guide you to shift your perspective from the familiar negative to the divinely connected, a place that will not only positively impact your world, but possibly shift the planet. It's all right here on Law of Attraction Talk Radio. Well, welcome to Law of Attraction Talk Radio. I'm Jules from beautiful La Quinta, California, right out here by Palm Springs, California. I am so glad that you could join me today because we've got one of the best shows that I really am anxious to let you in on. So today we have Dan Castro who wrote the book Hidden Solutions All Around You. Now, what's so special about this book? Hmm, I'm going to tell you. What is it that millionaires and billionaires saw that the average entrepreneur didn't see? This is the secret that will be revealed to you in this show. Why is it that they became millionaires and billionaires when somebody else is following the same exact steps? But what is it that they saw that the average entrepreneur didn't see? And this is what we want to bring out to you today. So it's going to be a great show. And before we dive into that terrific show with Dan Castro, I want to talk about Law of Attraction Magazine. If you have not seen Law of Attraction Magazine, I think that you are absolutely going to love it. From love, from business, from spirituality, everything you need, including health, to make yourself a magnificent creator is right there in those pages. And guess what? Law of Attraction Magazine is absolutely free. I don't want to charge because this magazine brings people into the collective consciousness where we take responsibility for our own happiness and for our own creations. And that's what it's all about, the nitty-gritty of it all. So tune in to Law of Attraction magazine. The next issue is coming out April 1st, and it's featuring none other than Michael Bernard Beckwith. And uh, he's writing an exclusive article for us. So go right now to lawofattractionmagazine.net and sign up for the update so you won't miss a free magazine ever. Um, on top of that, I wanted to let you know of Law of Attraction Radio Network. We have got some of the most tremendous experts on the Law of Attraction right there on LOARadioNetwork.com. We have got the new show called Body Confidence, and it is terrific. It really teaches you how to identify and communicate with your body so that you can walk into a room and feel confident about who you are. It is so good. And we have Calling All Angels, which is absolutely a hilarious show, but it brings you such deep content that you are really going to appreciate. We have got uh, Ask Julie Ryan. We have got the phenomenal Dr. Michael Mosley, who is such a profound intuitive. And these two, along with Calling All Angels, have a live show which you can call into. All you have to do is go to LOARadioNetwork.com and go to their show page and sign up for updates. And they will send you an email every time that they are on air and you can call up and ask them a question about your life. And you know what? They are terrific. 
So join us on LOA Radio Network. We have got mobile apps so you can take us everywhere you want to go. But we are here to serve the world. And every time you have a smile on your face, well, it just means so much to each one of us. So check us out, LOARadioNetwork.com. Now let's get on to this fantastic show with Dan Castro. Well, welcome, Dan Castro, to Law of Attraction Talk Radio. I'm so glad you could be with me today. Hi, thanks for having me. You know, um, what I've discovered after reading your book, Hidden Solutions All Around You, is that you have the secret that all of the entrepreneurs really want to know about, which is why. Why is it that millionaires or billionaires are seeing something and we're missing out on some of the the or the one thing that they can see that we can't see uh, that's what everybody wants to know and you have really brought this secret to light in your book hidden solutions all around you so thank you dan i want to start off first and ask you well what inspired you to write this terrific book well thank you i appreciate your kind words um basically this book was born out of curiosity um I wanted to know why it is that 10 people can be looking at the same pile of trash and only one of them see the treasure. Because you've heard the saying your whole life, right? One man's trash is another man's treasure. And when you read those books and you see those movies, they're interesting, but they only touch on the surface level details like who, what, and where, and when. But nobody had up to this point tried to answer the question, why? Why is it that 10 people can be looking at the same pile of trash and only one of them see the treasure? So I went on a seven-year-long adventure to try to find the answers to why, and the answers are in this book. It's it's very exciting, uh, and apparently other people are catching on to it because the book won ten awards and now it's selling all over the world. Wow! Congratulations! Oh wow! <laughs> so in your book, you talk about ideas in the air. What exactly are the ideas in the air? So this is a, a very compelling. Um, fact that that people need to understand you know when they when they feel stuck and they don't know whether to turn right or turn left or go straight or go backwards they need to realize that the solution already exists it's there's never a point in your life or in the history of the world where there has been such a thing as a problem without a solution and you know a case in point is um, there have been simultaneous discoveries of ideas and inventions at different parts of the planet that were invented or discovered independently by people working without knowing the other person was working on the same problem. And you know, you've got things like the light bulb, the typewriter, the steamship. Um, you've got things that that uh, that were like this. The the art of writing, for example. Um, some of the most basic things that we that we know and enjoy today were invented simultaneously but independently by two different people working on on different parts of the planet. And when you think about that, you have to wonder, well, why is that? How is it that two people that that don't even talk to each other, that don't know each other exist, can come up with the same solution or the same concept? And the answer is this. Those ideas are already in the air. They're already all around us. All you have to do is reach out and grab them and bring them to fruition. And the book explains exactly how to do that and how these people throughout history have done that. Wow. Wow. I love that. So it is. The ideas are out there and we can just grab them, but we have to know how to grab them. Yes. So in other words, we kind of have to be aware of everything that's going on, right, then? Yes, exactly. Um, you know, our, our brains are, are like a, a radio um, in the sense that, you know, you can, you can put a radio in a room um, and until you turn it on and tune into the right frequency, it doesn't do anything. But right now in the room that I'm sitting in, right here, all around me, there are radio waves that are, that are flying through the air, but I'm not hearing them, you're not hearing them, because we haven't turned on our radio to tune into that information. And that's what ideas in the air are. They're, they're literally all around us. So the question is, how do you turn on the, the, the radio in your brain to those frequencies to start tapping into that information. Um, and, and so the book t- des- describes exactly how to do that. 
I call it creating a heightened awareness because if the information is already there, you have to ask yourself, well, how come I'm not seeing it? How come all these other uh, geniuses are seeing these ideas and I'm not? They're right in front of you um, most of the time and you don't even see them. And so you have to learn how to open the eye of the brain and, and create a heightened awareness, just like tuning in your radio to those frequencies. And once you do that, bam, all of a sudden you've got instant music or instant news or instant communication. And, and all of a sudden it looks like you're a genius because you're able to hear that information and see the information that nobody else is seeing. And it looks like you're a wizard or some sort of a genius, but you're not. You just learned how to, how to tune in your brain to that information and capture those ideas in the air. Wow. So, are you talking about the pineal gland? No, not at all. No, really? No. <laughs> okay, I thought that's where it d downloads in, but you're saying no. Okay, that's yeah. good. So, there's something else in the brain? Yes. The, the that you can have, turn on? Yes, yeah, scientists have proven over and over that, that we see with the brain more than we see with the eyes. Okay, that's a very important concept. Wow. Uh, I call it the eye of the brain, and, and we know this is true from, from many different examples. I'll just give you a couple here. Um, the simplest one that we can all relate to is, you know, and this happens to me all the time, you know, your, your spouse says, hey, can you go to the kitchen and, and bring me the salt? And you go to the kitchen and you say, okay, I can't find it. And the spouse says, it's right there on the counter next to the fridge. So you go next to the counter, um, you go to the counter next to the fridge, and you look and you look and you can't see it. And this little debate happens, and, and you say, it's not here. And she says, yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. And so pretty soon she gets up off the couch, and she comes, and, it's, and she grabs it, and it's right in front of you. <laughs> and you didn't see it the whole time. Yeah, that's, I've been there, done that. <laughs> yeah, and the reason in my example that, that I couldn't see it is because unbeknownst to me, my wife had gone out and, and bought new salt and pepper shakers that didn't look like salt and pepper shakers. They looked like some kind of a spaceship from Star Wars. And, and so what is my brain looking for? My brain is looking for the, for the stereotypical salt shaker that looks like a tube with a silver ball on the top with holes in it, right? It's not looking for this space station, you know, that she bought. Um, and, of course, it's literally not a space station, but, but it looks different than what my mind was expecting to see. And so my brain filtered that thing right out. It's not, that's not a salt shaker, right? Um, but to make it more, more um, scientific... Uh, in the 1970s, airline pilots were, were crashing planes at an inordinate level, and it was really getting scary out there. There were several movies made about it, as you may recall. And so the, this, the behaviorologist decided to conduct experiments with pilots, and they put these pilots in a simulated cockpit and told them to do simulated landings. And the pilots began to do the landings, and the, the scientists began to put objects in the middle of the runway. And they started with small things like rabbits, and, and dogs and the pilots kept landing the airplane so they said well let's put something bigger like a car or a truck and the pilots kept landing the airplanes and they put a whole airplane in the runway and, and 78 percent of the pilots kept landing the airplane and so what scientists figured out was that pilots when they get into a routine mode they are not expecting to see a, an airplane in the middle of the runway. They're not expecting to see a cat or a dog. So their brain literally filters it right out and they don't see what's right in front of them. And, and so that was the answer to that problem. And the brain in, in your everyday life works the same way. You have this enormous problem. You're looking for a solution. But the solution that you're looking for fits a particular stereotype in your brain. It fits a model of the universe that you've created, just like my, my picture of salt, correct? And just like the airline pilots, uh, they had a picture of a perfect universe in which, you know, you don't put things in the middle of the runway. So we filter out the things that we're not expecting to be there. Uh, that's, that's one way that we discovered that the, the brain has its own eye and that we see with the brain more than we see with our eyes. The other way we know this is because we tend to see things that are not there. So the inverse is also true. We see things that are not there. And we know this from, from conducting many, exam, many case studies with police officers. Um, and this, this is a harsh reality, but it's true. If you put a, a black man in a dark alley who pulls a, a black wallet out of his pocket, most police officers are going to see a gun and they're going to shoot that man. Um, and this has happened over and over throughout the United States. Yes. It happens with cell phones and, and any kind of a dark object. Um, and, and so the police, police officers have formed an expectation in their brain 
about what they expect for this man to be carrying, and that's what they see. And they'll testify in court that they literally saw a gun uh, being pulled out of this man's pocket. So again, there's tremendous amount of research that, that proves that the brain has its own eye and that we tend to see with the brain more than we see with our own eyes. Wow, that is brilliant. I've never heard that before. Oh, I just love it. <laughs> that is that solves so many mysteries. Yeah, it really does. And and if you think about it, you know, if I can be staring at a, at a salt shaker, or a pilot can be staring at a whole airplane, and filter it out to where it's not even there in our brains, how much more possible is it to filter out solutions that we can't even see at all? Because if we can filter out a concrete, tangible object, you can you can understand then why you know someone could present us with a solution, or maybe we're looking at the solution, and we're not even seeing it. We don't acknowledge it as a solution because we we don't expect it to solve the problem. We don't. It's, it doesn't look like what the solution is supposed to look like in our brain. It doesn't come from the source that we're expecting the solution to come from, and so we're literally walking around filtering out solutions that are all around us. And the book is filled with hundreds of examples of people that that accidentally stumbled upon a solution that they were not expecting to see, and some of these solutions changed the his, changed the history of the world. Wow! So, can we actually learn how to refocus our brain eye? Absolutely, we can do this. Absolutely, it's called brain plasticity. This is also uh, has also been scientifically proven. Um, you know, 50 years ago, we we thought the brain was like a computer. It was something that could be programmed and and deprogrammed. And if you take out a chunk of your brain, uh, the the chunk that you took out that was responsible for speech or for for hand movements or for uh, for memory was gone forever. Um, but but it turns out that that's not the case at all. The brain is very very plastic. And um, we've discovered that you can change your own brain with the power of belief and with the power of thought. And this is not just uh, pseudoscientific jargon. This has actually been technically and scientifically proven that, that the brain will rewire itself uh, to adjust for the missing piece and that function can be replaced over here. And um, you know, once you realize that fact, it's called brain plasticity. Um, so you can Google that phrase if you want, and you'll you'll see libraries uh, of information about this. Um, the brain is more like a muscle, which means that it can be exercised, and the more you exercise it, the more powerful it gets. And uh, we we know that with the power of thought alone, you can actually affect the the living tendrils of your brain and cause neural connections that were never there to to be created. So once you're aware of this, all of a sudden you have opened up the keys to the universe. Because if you can rewire your own brain to come up with solutions that you've never thought of before, all of a sudden uh, people will start thinking you're a genius, uh, that you're a prodigy, and, and you're not really. You've just learned to open the eye of the brain to see what was already there. Is that difficult to do? No, it's Is not. Is it? Absolutely it's not. not. No. Um, there, was, there was a man uh, named um, Pablo Bachirita in the... Um, in the 1960s who was um, he had a stroke basically and he was a professor and as a result of the stroke he was unable to walk and he had a little bit of the use of his of his hands but not much and back then there was almost nothing you could do so um, one of his sons took him home and began to be his his nursemaid they couldn't afford you know to put him in a nursing home for the rest of his life and the son brought him home and he said, well, and the son was not trained. He was not a physical therapist, not a neurologist, but he really, really wanted to help his dad. He was, he was heartbroken to see his dad in that condition. And he vowed that he would help his dad walk again. And so he would put his dad on the floor on all fours and put a, a ball uh, two feet away from him and he would lean his dad up against the wall and say, go get the ball. And the dad looked at him like he was crazy and, and he was being mean and it seems mean, but the, this man would would shove himself across the wall using the wall for his support and eventually grasp the ball. Uh, the other thing that he would do was he would uh, put his dad in a chair uh, next to the sink and he would place a pot in one hand and a scrub uh, brush in the other hand and say, you know, wash this pot. 
and the the professor would because he couldn't move his hands he would he would use his shoulder to 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 make his hand move in a circular motion like this and eventually he would he was able to wash the pot and life began to emerge from this man's limbs to the point where he put a typewriter in front of his dad and he told his dad to type a few words and, and so again the the father had his hands over the keys like this and he began to with his shoulders to plop his fingers down on the typewriter to try to hit certain keys and eventually the life and the motion came back to his keys and he was able to type again um, the story goes on and on but eventually one day he he became a full-time professor again and he was able to climb uh, up to the top of a mountain at 10,000 feet where he died of a heart attack about 15 years later now here's the scary part this is this is the mind-blowing part when he died his other son happened to be a neurologist and they they did what neurologists do which is they took uh, samples of, of this man's brain his, his own father so it's a little bit gross a little bit you know uh, <laughs> gut-wrenching but they, yeah. they took slices of this man's brain like like slices of bologna or you know slices of meat and they laid them out on these on these glass plates and um, the doctor's partner um, after looking at all these slides, ran to the other room and, and told her, her partner, she said, you're not going to believe this. And he ran over there. And they, they discovered that 30% of this man's brain was dead. It was not functioning. And at that point, oh my. at that point, Dr. Bachirita, that's his name, if you want to look it up, B-A-C-H-Y-R-I-T-A, discovered one of the most phenomenal things that changed how neurologists look at the brain and he realized that all the functions that had been going on in that one-third of his father's brain had shifted over to the other parts of the brain which is where they got the 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 realization that the brain is plastic and and they realized that you know even in that extreme situation this son the other son and his dad were, were able to rewire that man's brain to allow the other, uh, the other, what looked like dead functions to 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 shift positions and to move over into the the real estate that was still alive. Now you don't have to have a stroke to see if this works, okay? Um, because we know now from studying neuroplasticity for many many years that you are actually rewiring your brain every time you learn something new. For example, um, when my father passed away, he, you know, he uh, he listened to mariachi music every day, and he played mariachi music, and um, and so when he passed away, I really really missed my dad. So I started listening to salsa music on the radio, uh, at work, at home, in the car, everywhere. And one of my employees came into my office one day, and she heard this music, and she she said, "Oh, do you salsa dance?" And I said, "No, I just like the music. You know, I miss my dad, and it makes me feel good." And and you know she said oh that's that's cha cha that's bachata that's merengue and that's salsa and so unbeknownst to me I said that's mawada you want to do my what and uh, unbeknownst to me the salsa music was broken up into four different genres that I could not hear I, I couldn't distinguish between them and I'm Hispanic and so and then she would do the steps in my office she would go yeah this is how you do that step this is a cha-cha step this is a merengue step this is a a, a bachata step and this is a salsa step and I said I have to learn this so I took salsa lessons and after about six months my brain was awakened and I realized that that there's a very distinct pattern to these to these music and now whenever I turn on my radio um, I can hear the differences in those rhythms and the beats and more importantly, my body can feel them. Okay, now what's going on there? That information was already going through the air, right? Just like we talked about earlier. It was already hitting my, my ears, right? My eardrum. Right. It was doing its job. It was doing everything it was supposed to do. But my ear was not hearing that information. And my, my body was not feeling it. But after a little bit of rewiring of my brain through, through salsa dancing and lessons, all of a sudden, a song will come on, and I'll go, that's merengue, that's cha-cha, that's bachata, no, that's salsa. Um, and it's phenomenal, because I realized at that moment that, that I had rewired my brain, just like this man Bachirita had, this, this father, this professor. And so you can rewire your own brain at the speed of thought, um, and also by, by practicing a skill over and over, like salsa dancing, um, or rock climbing or any number of skills that you may want like playing the piano for example you're actually rewiring your brain so you have to you have to get physical then 
you don't, in you don't, order you don't to... literally have to get physical. It helps to get physical. To me, uh, the, phys- the physicality of it is a, is a tremendous advantage. But they've all, the neurologists have also done this experiment. They put um, five people in one room with, um, with some sheet music, very simple sheet music, and said, you know, play this melody. Practice this melody. It's a new melody they've never seen before on a real piano. And in an hour, we're going to give you a test to see if you can do it, you know, from memory. They put another group of five students in another room with no keyboards, no pianos, but told them to visualize the piano and gave them the same sheet music and said, visually practice this music uh, on your pretend piano. And now we're going to give you a test to see if, see if you can do it. And they put those 10 people in a room with real pianos. And the people that had no pianos to practice with performed at a 99% level as well as the people that had actual pianos. <laughs> wow. Yeah, because they had, they had literally rewired their brain even in that short hour. Um, so yeah, the physicality is important, but it's not critical. Uh, um, you know, if you have the opportunity to do both, by all means, do both. But we know now that thoughts are things. They're they're not these intangible, ethereal concepts floating around in the universe. Thoughts are literally things that can that have a physical impact on your physical brain, and they are causing new neural connections to happen. Uh, if you if you do it and if you if you create these new new uh, neural connections on purpose so it sounds like that this may be the cure for Alzheimer's as well because if you are constantly starting or looking at things new things to accomplish it would be impossible to get Alzheimer's, wouldn't it? I'm not sure about impossible because I'm not an Alzheimer's doctor and I don't want to be accused of, of practicing medicine without oh. a license. But, um, because, <laughs> and I'm not really sure, you know, medically and scientifically speaking, what causes Alzheimer's. But I do know that the studies and the research that, that have been done out there on neuroplasticity have confirmed that if you constantly are learning something new, especially as you get up in age, that it puts off the possibility of Alzheimer's and dementia uh, by 50%. And, and the reason is obvious because you're not ever allowing your brain to go dormant. If the brain is like a muscle, if you don't exercise it, it will atrophy just like a muscle. Uh, in fact, you can make yourself um, an invalid by, by you know, taking one leg and just never using it for a year. If there was you know, a way to physically separate it from the rest of your body, tie it off, folded it in at the knee and not use it and but you continue to use your right leg that left leg will wither away to almost nothing until the point where you can't use it anymore and we know that right. uh, from experience and your brain is the same way if you, if you get to the point where you're watching TV so often or playing video games or whatever it is you do and putting your brain in neutral you're actually causing your very own brain to atrophy and the likelihood of getting dementia or Alzheimer's skyrockets Wow so I saw a video of you and you were talking about the law of attraction and thoughts of course is the law of attraction but what are we missing with the law of attraction then what are we doing wrong sir well that's, I'm very glad you asked that question uh, because this is one of my pet peeves um, you know, I believe in the law of attraction but not the way most people believe in it okay so let me just clarify um, and I think part of the reason that people are missing the, the true power of the law of attraction is because they think that all they have to do is sit in their living room and visualize a bright red Ferrari sitting in their driveway and that one day when they walk outside there's going to be a bright red Ferrari sitting in their driveway. That's not, that's not attracting anything. That's not the power of anything. That's called fantasy and, and delusion, okay? Magical thinking. Yeah. Um, but if you visualize the bright red Ferrari in your driveway and you get out and you go work for it and you visualize um, a solution to your financial problems that allows you to afford the bright red Ferrari then yes one day you'll walk outside and see a bright red Ferrari and we've got hundreds of examples of that from history um, including the the, the movie um, what was it called happiness or whatever it was spelled funny h-a-p-p-y-n-e-s-s where a black guy who was uh, homeless at the time um, he saw a bright red Ferrari on, on the street, literally, and he, and he saw the man putting money in the parking meter, and he walked up to him and said, who are you, and what do you do that allows you to afford this kind of car? And the guy said, well, I'm a stockbroker. 
And he said, what's that? And he told him what a, in a nutshell what a stockbroker was. And so this homeless man went and he did a lot of research to figure out what it was in the world that these, that these people did, these stockbrokers that allowed them to afford such a car. And in his brain, he, he decided, one day I'm going to be like that guy. I'm going to be a stockbroker and I'm going to be able to afford a bright red Ferrari. So think for a minute about what he visualized. He stopped visualizing on the bright red Ferrari and he started visualizing on the person he needed to become in order to afford the bright red Ferrari, okay? And there's hundreds of examples of this in, in my first book, Critical Choices That Change Lives. Um, you know, we, we focus too much on the things we want instead of focusing on the person we have to become in order to achieve the things we want. And so that man went, went on and he, he did all eventually become a stockbroker and they actually made a movie about this guy's life. And uh, he became a very successful stockbroker and eventually he did buy himself a bright red Ferrari. So, you know, the, the people who don't understand the power, the, the power of attraction or the law of attraction will say, well, see, it works. You know, he saw a bright red Ferrari and wished for it and, and wanted it and visualized it and boom, you know, 20 years later he owns a bright red Ferrari. But they're, they're missing all the in-between part, all the guts um, and, and the fact that he actually visualized the person he had to become in order to, to, to buy that bright red Ferrari. Um, it's not so much changing what you're doing for a living, it's changing who you are being for a living. Oh wow, that's powerful right there. <laughs> Say that again, that is powerful, that is, oh my goodness. <laughs> this, is, this is the life-changing message that I learned personally. You know, and, and there's so many guru seminars about there. You know, come to our workshop and learn how to invest in real estate. Come to our workshop and learn how to do this or that. You'll be a millionaire overnight. And etc. Um, but what they're missing is they think that they can learn a new skill or change their job. In other words, they're telling us change what you do for a living and you'll achieve your dreams, right? And what I learned over the years is that you don't change what you're doing for a living. That's not enough. Because if you just change jobs and you're the same person you were before, you're going to fail at that too, okay? So you, instead of changing what you're doing for a living, change who you are being for a living, then that opens the keys to the universe. And you have to be willing to accept all of these new thoughts and ideas that pop into your head. Not only that, but, but you have to be willing to accept that your model of the universe might be wrong. That, that what you Ooh. think a salt shaker lo should look like might not be what the salt shaker looks like. The, the solution that you're looking for may be dramatically different from what you think it's supposed to look like. It may come from a source that you thought it should never come from. So the people that you're not talking to because they believe differently from you, they look different from you, the books that you're not reading because you think they're hokey or stupid are the very books you should be reading and the very people you should be talking to. You need to, to break out of the, the circles, of the, the societal circles that you're in and talk to people you've never talked to before, read books you've never read before um, in order to start changing the neurology in your brain. Um, because if you keep doing what you've always done, of course, you'll keep getting what you've always gotten. Um, so, you know, they're, they're changing the, the, the neurons in their brain or changing the plasticity of your brain is not that hard, but you have to be willing to accept that the way you've been doing life and that your fundamental beliefs might be fundamentally flawed and start accepting that possibility. Yeah, that's good because you are then taking responsibility for your own thoughts Correct. Um, and your own creations. So what about Steve Jobs? What about Richard Branson? What about all these guys? They developed their brain by, I mean, because look at Steve Jobs. He had no idea about the iPhone way back when. Correct. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned Steve Jobs. He's in my book, and, and so is Richard Branson and all these people that you mentioned. Um, here's the thing about the, I, the iPod and the iPhone. Um, back 25 years ago, Everybody carried around a Sony Walkman. Remember those? Right, right. Oh, yeah. Sony dominated the world in terms of pocket portable music, right? Right. So if anybody should have thought of the iPod, it should have been Sony, correct? Because right. that was their industry. That's what they were making a billion dollars doing. Why did it take somebody outside of the industry? Because Steve Jobs wasn't ma it didn't have anything to do with music. He was making computers. So why did it take somebody outside the industry to come up with a revolutionary concept that made Walkmans obsolete overnight? And the answers are in the book as well. Um, 
The reason is because the people that are in the industry, they get, they get so focused on what they're doing. And we do this in our jobs too. I, I've seen sales representatives do it. I've seen computer scientists do it. I've seen programmers do it. Um, I've seen project managers do it. They think that all that they have to do to succeed and to get more, more money is to do exactly what they're doing faster, better, harder, and more of it. Correct? Right. Now, that's what Sony thought. Sony said, "Well, that you know, we we, we don't want to make more more Walkmans. We want to sell more. We just need to make them, you know, better, cheaper, faster, um, smarter, and 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 get more marketing and sell them out there." Okay. And Steve Jobs came along and made boom all of that obsolete overnight. And the reason he was able to do that is because he was not thinking like Sony. He was not thinking like a music like a music That's producer right. or like a, a producer of pocket radios. He was thinking like a computer scientist. He was thinking. Of, he was thinking like a guy who makes computers, and you know when you want to download music now, you go to iTunes. That was created by Steve Jobs. You put it on your smartphone, whether it's a Samsung or an iPod. They all use the same technology that that Steve Jobs came up with. Um, and when was the last time you ever saw a Walkman? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, they're antiques now. Wow. So he he used his computer analytical computer skills correct but he had to develop the iPhone which is really a mini computer yes exactly yeah I mean we already had voice recordings right we had digital recordings you know you could record your voice and, and send it by email um, or any other variety of ways and so Steve Jobs just basically figured out well if we can send you know my voice via email why can't we send music via email and if we can send it via email why can't we put it on a on a small pocket held device so it wasn't that big of a leap for him uh, but but it would it would have been a huge leap for Sony because they were not That's computer right. technicians they were not computer scientists I got it okay so in the case of Richard Branson I mean he is like the person that law of attraction people really look up to because he's positive he keeps on moving forward and here he's developing airplanes virgin air and then even rockets yeah here's the thing about richard branson you know you could say part of his success is the law of attraction but again it goes back to what i said earlier power of attraction uh, plus your couch equals nothing okay Right, power of attraction right. plus hard work and creative thinking and opening the eye of your brain achieves the impossible okay Richard Branson people today forget but Richard Branson was a music producer he had a he had a oh. company called Virgin Records right back in the 70s and 80s that's right he produced Boy George and the Sex Pistols and a lot of other controversial musicians in the UK and and his book talks about you know how one day he was um, in the Virgin Islands and uh, he was trying to fly back to the UK um, and the flights were all canceled for some reason although all the commercial flights were canceled and and so he looked around and he found a private charter that was in the area and he said you know how much to fly me back to to the UK and, and the guy said well it's gonna cost this amount and of course it was an exorbitant amount and he looked around the room and realized that everybody in the room also needed a way back to where they they were coming they were going you know to and so he rented this charter air, air, aircraft a small plane and on it with a with a piece of chalk on the chalkboard he said chartered flights to wherever you're going and and wrote down his phone number you know and people began to call him and say hey i need a chartered flight to here and so he rented seats on the plane that he rented and he started doing charter flights from this little island to take everybody home. So his cost of flying home was nothing <laughs> because he passed it on to all these other people. And somebody tapped him on the shoulder and said, hey, you know what? If you, if you tinker with this a little bit, you may have something here. And that's what put the bug in his head because up to that point, he was only a music producer. Music producers don't fly airplanes. They don't, they don't charter airplanes. That's they don't right. fly people all over the world. And so he came home one day and he told his partners, he goes, I'm going to start an airline. And they thought he'd lost his mind. And they said, you'll do it over my dead body. I've known you since the third grade. We've been best friends and partners since forever. If you do this, I'm out. You know, this is not going to happen. You're going to bankrupt the company. You don't have any business going into that business. It's not our expertise. You're going to bankrupt the company. And, and Richard Brand said, watch me. <laughs> wow. Now, on his maiden voyage, the very first commercial flight, 
Um, there were TV cameras whirling everywhere, you know, photographers taking pictures. And this plane takes off, and the right engine blows up with everybody watching. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. And it limps home on the, on the left engine and lands. And most people think about what, what you would have done in that situation. You know, you've told, everybody's told you you're, you're, you're dreaming, you're going to fail. Don't do this. You're out of your mind. You're going to bankrupt us. And you have defied all of them and decided to do it anyway. And on your maiden voyage, the engine fails. What are, what are the naysayers going to say now? Don't do it. it you got the wrong business. This is a sign from God. This is, we told you. <laughs> we told you. This is, this is an omen from the universe saying we were right, you were wrong. Go home and go back to what you're, you're good at. But what did Richard Branson do? He looked around and said, how much is a new engine? <laughs> and he bought a new engine. And now you can fly you know, Virgin Airways all over the world. You know, that's right. Um, and he's laughing all the way to the bank. And and you know, when I read his book and I and I watched a lot of his interviews, you know, people ask him, "Why did you do this? What what do you, you you were already a billionaire with the music industry? Why did you want to do this?" And and his answer was, "Because it's fun, and because I wanted to see uh, if I could do it." <laughs> that's right. That's right. And that makes so much sense because he was asking the questions. He wasn't stopping and going backwards and saying, okay. He kept on asking questions. Yeah. And, and more importantly, he believed in himself, you know. Yeah, um, the confidence. The, the power of belief is one of the most powerful forces on the earth and in the whole universe, really. Um, and, you know, what you have to realize about the power of belief is it's not hokey. It's not... It's not the power of positive thinking like people think it is. Well, just think positive, look on the bright side, and blah, 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 blah. And those terms are so overused that, that you know, people don't believe in them anymore. They go, well, I was positive all I, all I could be, and my, my dad still died of cancer, you know. Uh, and there's very real tragedies in the world that, that we cannot avoid through the power of positive thinking. But we do know this, the power of positive thinking and the power of belief has an, a literal effect on the, on the ten. Uh, the tendrils of your brain, the living tissue of your brain, and it can create neural connections that were never there before. We've proven this scientifically. So, you know, don't think of the power of belief or the power of positive thinking as something hokey and spiritual and, and ethereal, because we know now that thoughts are things. They're real things. They have a real physical impact on your brain. They do cause neural connections to happen that were never there before. And more importantly, they cause a chemical reaction in your body that creates and generates hormones like like dopamine, like um, endorphins, and like serotonin. You know, all those hormones—they're not just fancy words. Those hormones are responsible for the feeling of courage you get. They're responsible for that feeling of excitement you get when when you have something to look forward to. They're the things that that drive the football players onto the football field, chanting, chanting "We're number one." All those feelings are generated by those three hormones: dopamine, serotonin, and endorphins. And we know scientifically that when you choose to believe something, even if nobody else believes it, that those chemicals are being generated and flooding your system. So when you choose to believe, all of a sudden you have courage when everybody else has no hope. You have excitement when everybody else is, is depressed and killing themselves, jumping out of windows in, in, uh, in New York City during the stock market crash. You are, you are causing things to happen physiologically and neurologically that would not happen but for the power of belief. And we're, we've already proven this scientifically, not me personally, but the neurologists out there. So the power of, of belief is not something uh, that, that has religious overtones anymore or spiritual okay. overtones or guru overtones. It is scientific now that we know the power of belief has a physical impact on your body and a, a neurological impact on your brain. That's that's very true but what about when you're open to these ideas flowing in and you can't get to the solution that you need but you want to keep on going forward are you allowing other people to come in to help you to get over that hump is that yeah that's I mean like like Trump says in his book the art of the dealing or whatever it is it's hiring the people that can move you forward that's correct 
So, for example, let's go back um, to the computer world for a minute. Uh, okay. Michael Dell and Mark Zuckerberg, yeah. okay, both college right. kids, both revolutionized their industry when all the experts, all the insiders missed the obvious, okay? So why did it take a college kid to come up with Facebook when we had such things as America Online? We already had Google. We already had all the industry experts, billion-dollar companies that should have seen that first, right? Why didn't they see it? When Michael Dell created a new way, a new system to create computers, we already had billion-dollar companies dominating the industry, Compaq, um, and I forget the other ones, or IBM, for example. Why didn't right. they see what Michael Dell saw? And so going back to your question, when, when the people that you're surrounded by and the books that you normally read, the TV shows that you normally read, uh, your friends are not providing the ready answers, you have got to go outside of yourself, you have got to go outside of your industry, you have got to go outside of your circles, uh, your books, and, and find people that, that don't agree with you, they think differently from you, they look differently from you, and their ideas may seem absolutely absurd. But it is, it is by embracing the absurd, by embracing the impossible, that your eye of your brain begins to open. And, and what I mean by that is, is that when you embrace the absurd, all of a sudden, uh, your eye will see things that you never would have contemplated before. It's what allowed Christopher Columbus to sail west in order to go east, right? Wow. Um, it's, it's what allows us. I just got, to do, got back from a 30-day trip to China, Tibet, and Nepal and Bhutan. And every time I fly, I get this feeling. You know, I think back, you know, even 200 years ago at the thought that some, you know, indigenous tribal person might have in the, in the jungles of, of, uh, of the Amazon to imagine in his wildest dreams the thought of, of elevating a 30-ton piece of metal 40,000 feet in the air and sailing it across the world. Absolutely impossible. Absurd, right. ridiculous, laughable, and yet we do it routinely. Okay, but it's it's by embracing the absurd and by you know uh, challenging challenging yourself with people that don't think like you, that don't look like you, and don't read your books, don't listen to your music, that your brain can suddenly be triggered to go boom. Hey, maybe just maybe that's possible when everybody else is laughing at you and saying that's crazy. You've lost your mind. You're going to bankrupt us. I mean, anytime you challenge your brain, yes, you're 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 causing something to happen at the neurological level. Um, I have to say that that not everything that we believe is true actually comes true. I mean, we've got to accept right. reality at some point. Uh, right. But it doesn't. It, it, it shouldn't stop you from dreaming. It shouldn't stop you from sailing west in, in order to go east. It shouldn't stop you from imagining the possibility that you can elevate a thirty-ton piece of metal forty thousand feet and sail it across the world. Um, so yes, you have to keep dreaming. You have to keep challenging your brain, and by doing that, you are affecting the neurons in your brain. Yeah, you have to open your brain to, to look at all possibilities. I mean, one of the, one of the things that um, people asked Einstein uh, when he was still living is they said, "How do you approach problems differently from the average person?" Because by that time, he was already considered a genius, and he gave a very simple but profound answer. He said, "Well, if someone were to say to you find the needle in the haystack most people would look for the needle in the haystack but when somebody says to me Professor Einstein please find the needle in the haystack I look for all possible needles <laughs> oh. anything that could possibly be a needle and, and so that goes back to you know this, this idea of, of forming a model in your brain of what the solution is supposed to look like and looking for that model, correct? Yeah. Oh, that is brilliant. <laughs> this is brilliant. I love this. So what is it that we can start doing now? Well, one is to go get your book, Hidden Solutions All Around You. <laughs> That's the first thing. Thanks. And and we can get that book where? You can get it at Amazon.com or on my website, HiddenSolutions.com. Great. And I'm going to post it. It's on the video, so you will be able to see the address. Um, but what is the first thing we can do the, in our dreams to to stay open, right? Well, what is it? The, the first thing that I would that I would recommend and that you know historically has been proven by all the people um, in this book 
is that you have to choose to believe, and that's probably the, the, the hardest step. It sounds simple, just choose to believe, just believe it. But it's it's probably the hardest thing you can do because your your belief system is the creation of many, many years of your own life's experiences and the, and the things you've been told over and over by your by your parents, your priest, pastor, guru, rabbi, whoever. Um, and so those beliefs have, have created well-worn paths in your brain and whenever a new thought enters your brain, it just flows down that path um, to to the point where you say it's impossible or or it's 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 doable. Um, and so you literally, in order to start rewiring your brain, you have to make a conscious, deliberate choice to believe against all odds that this can happen. Just like Richard Branson did. I'm going into the airline industry with no experience, no uh, expertise whatsoever. Um, and, and just like Steve Jobs said, I'm going into the music industry with no experience whatsoever. Uh, and Michael Dell, you know, going into making laptops, no experience whatsoever. And Mark Zuckerberg creating Facebook with no experience whatsoever. I am going to do this. I am going to bring it to fruition with hard work, with thought and creativity. So step one is to choose to believe against all odds. And once you've chosen to believe, what happens is it creates an expectation. Um, when we sit down in a chair, we don't think about whether the chair is going to hold us, correct? Why is that? Right. It's because you've already formed a belief in your mind that has created an expectation that when you sit down, the chair is going to hold you up. And so belief is the first step, and that generates expectations that are, that are going to happen. And, and when you get back into expectation, of course, it goes back into the law of attraction. Uh, because the more you expect something to happen, the more you expect to see the solutions, the more those solutions will start magically appearing all around you and people will start to think that, that you live a charmed life and that you're some sort of a, magi a magician or a guru uh, or a genius. And uh, I wish we had time for me to go into many, many examples in my own personal life where people have said exactly those things and they literally say, Dan, you're different. You know, what you're saying doesn't work for me. And, and Dan, people only write you checks for $250,000. They've never done that for me. You're, you know, you've got something going on that, that nobody else can do. And like, oh, let's hear that story. We have time to hear that story. <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear that story. <laughs> um, okay, so I'll give you the nutshell version. Um, I'm a business okay. litigation attorney by, by trade, and I also do a lot of real estate um, litigation and transactions. And I have had some limited uh, white-collar crime experience as a defense attorney because as an attorney, I've been appointed by federal courts. In other words, they forced me to take on some white-collar criminal defendants. Um, some, some states and some counties don't have a public defender, so they tap their own lawyers and they say, your job is to represent this guy. And so I had a little bit of white-collar experience, not a tremendous amount. It was not my area of expertise. Um, and I, I got a phone call from a guy who said he had an employment dispute with his with his company. You know, that's right up my alley. I've done many of those. And um, so we sent off some demand letters, and I solved that problem. And about a month later, he called me and said, uh, Dan, you're not going to believe this, but I've been indicted. And I said, you what? And it was some very, very serious charges, not for, for anything like murder, but it was for uh, a white-collar type of fraud. Um, an embezzlement and um, you know, I, I couldn't believe that my friend, my good friend now, my client had been accused of these things and um, it turns out that he was very very wealthy and his wife was also indicted and the reason they indict the wife is not because she's guilty necessarily but because she knows information that she can uh, give to the prosecutors in exchange for a plea deal. <laughs> so it's kind of a game. They indict the wife and they say but if you tell us everything you know we'll, we'll let you off. And um, and so because this was not my, my forte, I, I brought in another very experienced white-collar criminal attorney and said, why don't you represent the husband since he's the main one and I'll represent the wife. Um, and um, these people had a lot of money. So uh, the man wrote a check to my friend for $250,000 and the wife wrote me a check for $250,000. Wow. Yeah, and I succeeded in, in getting the charges dismissed against her in about in about thirty days. So I made two hundred fifty grand wow. in about thirty days. <laughs> wow! All right, all right. I love it. Yeah. So you have um, you say everything we can see is made of stuff we can't see. So explain that because that sounds very profound. 
It was very exciting when I discovered this. Um, you know, people in this day and age, you know, we're, we're, we grew up in, in the age of reason is what they call this, um, believing that the only things that are real are the things that we can see, touch, feel, and hear, right? Uh, right. We say things like, prove it, you know, show me the evidence. And as an attorney, that's, that's my world. Show me the evidence. You know, just give me the facts, ma'am. And, and, and scientists in every field of science live by those rules. It has to be weighed. It has to be measured. It has to be observed. Uh, or it doesn't exist. It's not real. If you can't prove it, it's a fantasy. It's a myth. It's some religious doctrine that, that nobody's ever proven. Um, but surprisingly enough, in the 1920s, um, when physicists began to, to open the atom and look inside of it, they discovered that inside of the atom exists nothing except for the tiny subatomic particles that they cannot even see. They only know they're there because of the effects of those subatomic particles. And so scientists begin to scratch their heads and say, wait a minute, how can there be nothing inside of this atom? How can, how can it exist of almost nothing? Especially when you realize that atoms make up everything. You can physically knock on the computer. You can, you can feel the chair you're sitting on. What is that chair made of? It's made of molecules, which are made up of atoms. And atoms are made up almost entirely of nothing. And these particular physicists wrote a book, Ernest Walton, Ernest Rutherford, and John Cockcroft. It's called Fly in the Cathedral. If you want to do this research, look up the book Fly in the Cathedral. Because they were so mystified that the atom consists of almost nothing except these tiny subatomic particles that they equated those subatomic particles to a fly in a huge cathedral. So in other words, the, the cathedral is the atom, the, the empty space in the atom is, is the air, or they call it nothing, and the subatomic particles is like a fly. And, and they, they still scratch their heads because they don't know what to call this empty space. There's not supposed to be nothing in the universe, right? Everything <laughs> that you can see, touch, feel, and hear is made of something. But yet the very building blocks of which they're all made of consists of nothing. And so with, with not being satisfied that, they, that these building blocks were made of nothing, they simply called it energy. <laughs> um, and, and it's the energy in those atoms that holds those subatomic particles together. It would hold, it's what holds the atoms together. And ultimately, cosmologists confirmed it. And they now say that it's what holds the universe together. So all this empty space you have between the stars and the planets, and we know we look up and we and we say, well, there's nothing there. Um, you know, in, in the in ancient times we thought it was it was ether, like a gas, or or some some invisible substance like a blanket holding all these stars and planets together. We just couldn't see it, and now cosmologists have confirmed that that no, it's really nothing. It's it's just called electromagnetism. Uh, for lack of a better word, you know, we, we don't know what else to call it. It's energy. It's electromagnetism, uh, but it's holding everything together. Now, why is that applicable to your life? It sounds like you know a, a bunch of very interesting science historically, but it was it was life changing for me because when I realized that everything that I can see is made of something I cannot see, that means that just because I cannot see a solution doesn't mean it's not there, <laughs> right? Just because you can't right. see it doesn't mean it's not real. Um, it, it very well could be real. You just haven't seen it yet. You haven't opened up the eye of your brain enough to see it. But, but don't discard things that you cannot see just because you can't see them because the very stuff that you're made of, the very chair you're sitting on, the very flesh in your body is made of stuff that you can't even see and yet you believe in it. And you, you practice it every day. You sit on that chair, you walk down the street and you're walking on almost nothing. It's crazy. You can find every solution that is in the idea field of the universe. That's exactly right. And, and in fact, you know, my, my philosophy goes a little bit deeper than that. You know, I have a saying and I have it printed on my wall because once I learned this, it, it really revolutionized my life. The saying I have on my wall is there is no such thing as a problem without a solution. Now, that sounds like positive thinking, you know, uh, hogwash and, and, and stuff like that. But if you think about it, scientists have proven over and over that the universe has to be in balance for it, for it to exist. Every time you inhale, you have to exhale. And for every positive um, element in the universe, there's a negative element. For every electron, there has to be a neutron, okay? Um, right. and, and at the scientific and the subatomic particle level, we have realized that in order for the universe to be in, in balance, there has to be both a positive charge and a negative charge, okay? 
Um, and if you, if you extrapolate that out into life, you realize that the whole world exists based on the same principle. You cannot have night without darkness. You cannot have right without wrong. You cannot have good without evil. And so if all those things are true, then it hit me one day, then that must be you cannot have a problem without a solution in order for the universe to remain in balance. And once you realize that scientifically, that it's a fact, then there literally is no problem you cannot solve. You just haven't found it yet. Give us your website because I I want to send everybody to your website. It's called HiddenSolutions.com. Okay. And are you going to be writing another book? Yes, absolutely. Great. Uh, you must come back onto this show and talk to us about your next book. I I just think this was the show that we all needed to hear. You are brilliant. You. And you just showed us how we can be as brilliant as you are. <laughs> Not as brilliant as me, as brilliant as the people in the book. They're the geniuses. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, you are a genius oh, too. This you. is great information and I so love it. Thank so Thank you, Dan Castro. Oh, my gosh, this is great. This has just got me going for the day. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. I'm glad you're excited, and I hope everybody out there has gotten a new sense of energy because once you realize for a fact, not for positive thinking, but for a fact that there is no such thing as a problem without a solution, it'll change your world, and you can charge the gates of hell with a squirt gun. All right, all the listeners are going to get ready to do that starting right now. Thank you. Thank you, Dan Castro. It's been a delight. Thank you so much, Jules. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back next week with another great show from Law of Attraction Talk Radio. If you'd like to comment on tonight's show, send an email to jules at loaradionetwork.com. And have a great week.